Check Me Out is made possible in part by the Friends of the Amarillo Public Library, Brick and Elm Magazine, and a grant from Humanities Texas, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. This episode of Check Me Out parallels the exhibition Americans and the Holocaust at the Amarillo Public Library and the Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, and Sarah Botstein film The U.S. and the Holocaust on Panhandle PBS. Special thanks to WETA, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and PBS for their support of this initiative. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Welcome to Check Me Out, a podcast for book lovers. I'm joined by my co-host, Amy Hart, as well as two librarians. If you guys would introduce yourselves, I'll start with you in front of me. I'm Melody Boren. I am the Youth Services Coordinator for the Amarillo Public Library System. And I am Cynthia Hunt, and I'm the Library Programs Specialist for the Amarillo Public Library. Awesome. We're both so excited to have you here to talk about the Holocaust. Now, people might be wondering, why? Why are we here talking about the Holocaust in 2022? So why is that? Why why do you, we'll start generally. Why is it important now to talk about the Holocaust, to read books on the Holocaust? I'll start with you, Cynthia. Okay. Uh, for one thing, people tend to forget things over time. If you forget the lessons of history, you are doomed to repeat them because human nature is human nature. And you want to be able to avoid something like the Holocaust ever happening. Again, it was the most horrific mass murder and genocide in history. So it's really important that people understand what led to it, the motives behind it, why people just kind of let it happen in many cases, and start doing some thinking about how things could be done differently in future so this never happens again. Right, because it's... It is still recent history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not so long ago. Hmm. What about you, Melody? What do you think? I think we have to be aware of the past, as Cynthia said, um, because it can happen again because human nature is what it is. We're the best and the worst all rolled into one messy ball, and Hmm. we have to be careful how things can just build and build and build until we find ourselves at a point of no return. So I know, you know, I was thinking this morning that particularly news and news cycles and things like that really shape public opinion about, you know, ongoing things. And obviously it was a little bit different back then because we didn't have the kinds of cycles that we have. What role do books play in that and shaping our understanding? Books allow authors to take a deep dive into what happened. It's not some thousand-page article, a little blip on a screen. It's something that needs real attention to understand. For It's too complex to just put into an article. Mm-hmm. There are too many different factors involved, both in within Germany and within the surrounding countries that they wound up taking over, within the other countries who did more to resist, and even within America and what we chose to publish and not publish, what uh, what we were doing in films, because newsreels and films and radio and newspaper and magazines 
were about the only way people had of getting information then. They didn't have the internet. So a lot of that got crafted by Germany. And we don't always realize that today. It wasn't even really, I think, fully understood for many years. So books are necessary to bring people to the realization of what happened. Right. So it provides some sort of clarity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What about you? What do you think? Well, from the other side of it, I think we get empathy. We get windows into other people's experiences. And that can work on both sides of this there's been some controversy about a children's book the boy in the striped pajamas recently about uh the emotional labor of the victims on behalf of the perpetrators so um but i think having you have to have a deep understanding of perpetrators as well or a better understanding so looking through that window and seeing how someone gets to a certain point of behaving in a way that they can't believe they ever would have behaved before. That's a journey, and if we need to understand that journey as well. Mm-hmm. Could you clarify, is the controversy around children reading that book, around when the striped pajamas? What is the... The problem is that when the camp guard, the, the young protagonist's father goes to prison for his war crimes, it, it's kind of asking for sympathy, Um, Ah. but you know, and the argument could be made, well, both sides need that, but that's a lot of labor that I don't think necessarily the, the boy in the striped pajamas needed to perform. So it was unfortunate for everyone involved, but we can't forget the victims. And that's what I think. It's not that children shouldn't be reading it. It's, it's the material. It's just the viewpoint that is questioned, not the, not whether children should read it or not. Why should children read about the Holocaust? Children should read about the Holocaust because it happened. It is, it is part of the, the reason the world is the way it is today and that the 80 years since, since then, the world has been shaped a different way than it was going to be before that happened. We need to understand experiences that color generations, viewpoints, and we need to have compassion for our fellow human beings. And that's where I start today with books um, for younger readers about kindness and not bullying and things like that. That makes sense. So you had said something about, you know, with children's books that they teach empathy or they, they you know, that's in a sense that's the role of a book. But what about for like with adults reading maybe more in-depth books on the Holocaust? Is there... A lot of trying to make sense of how this can happen. Is that part of the... Oh, yeah. The, That's a lot of it. Yeah. I think that a lot of what the books are about is looking at how could a group of people suddenly turn on people they had lived side by side with for hundreds of years, if not thousands, in these communities. A lot of the... Jews in Germany and Austria and Poland and Hungary and Russia had lived there for generation upon generation upon generation. And they wound, I mean, they uh, many of them had fully assimilated. Some of them had not and lived in little Jewish communities called shtetls. 
and were more what you call Orthodox or Hasidic Jews. And they kept to their law and kept themselves separate, but they weren't causing trouble or anything. I mean, there's always some element of any group of people that is going to be rabble-rousing or Hmm. something like that. But by and large, no. They were just people raising their families, doing their jobs, and trying to make life better for their kids. So how do you go from being neighbors to being enemies and considering the person who lives next door to you to be subhuman? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is just, I think it's, a lot of it is Goebbels, Joseph Goebbels, who said he was Hitler's uh, minister of propaganda. He said, if you're going to tell a lie, make it a big lie and then say it over and over and over and people will come to believe it. Mm-hmm. And that's how a lot of it happens. And it wasn't like a light switch. It wasn't like Hitler took control of Germany and all of a sudden they enacted the final solution. No, it was little steps. First, like calling for a boycott of Jewish businesses in April of 1933. Then you go on to other little steps like, oh, your children can't go to public school. Mm-hmm. Your sons and daughters can't go to university. If you're a lawyer or a doctor, you can only practice on fellow Jews. And so it just keeps incremental you can't hold government office you can't do this you can't do that you have to have you have to have your name changed to david for a middle name if you don't have an obviously jewish first name and i forget what the middle name was for the women sarah i think it was sarah Mm -hmm. yeah and so they all had to change their name on their passports and everything else then they're stripped of citizenship and don't have any rights to citizenship. So it just chips away bit by bit by bit by bit. And you take away not only their ability to make a living and they have to live off their savings to the inability to, to get an education, the ability to travel. The they ability. take typewriters and radios as well. Yeah. So you can't complain about things and you can't go looking for people to get you help. And you are expected to, at first they just wanted Jews to all leave the country. And so they were saying, yeah, leave, leave. But the neighboring countries are saying, we can't take in all these people. Mm -hmm. Are you insane? So that just, it just, one little incremental thing at a time. time. So it, because it was more glacial than we think about it. I mean, I, I have not studied the Holocaust at all. Um, other than what I, we learned in school. And it very much feels like the light switch moment that you're talking about. And it was not. Um, but do you think there was a time, because all of these things, it feels like these things are, yes, they're taking away some of their rights, but I don't know that there's any way that somebody could have stepped in at that point. When was the moment when a country should have stepped in? A lot of people think Neville Chamberlain hmm. in Great Britain should have uh, been firmer and not brokered the peace in our time. Uh, the appeasement did not work. We've seen that repeatedly with tyrants, and it does not work. That's one of the few times the slippery slope <laughs> actually comes to pass. Well, I took this. What are you going to do? I'm going to take that, too. That could have been it. And it could go all the way back to the Treaty of Versailles. Mm. Had they not been humiliated? Mm-hmm. 
would things have been different? Yeah, I think that Hitler wouldn't have had such fertile ground to sow his seeds of hate Mm -hmm. if it hadn't been for the punitive measures of the Treaty of Versailles. And I think that's why after World War II, we took a much gentler, more generous, less punitive take on rebuilding in Germany and in Japan was because, hey, you lost. We're going to be good winners this time. We're not going to rub your faces in it. We're going to help rebuild, and you are going to help us help rebuild, but you are not going to be humiliated and all of that. We're just going to be glad we got through this. So with children, I want to go back to this. I'm, you know, thinking about adults reading this, making meaning of it, uh, understanding more like timelines, things like that. Do kids read and think of the Holocaust abstractly? Is this like, or can they understand that it's a thing that happened? Like, Yes, I think starting in third grade, you you can read books that are about children your age, maybe a little older, um, and come to terms with that. I have some examples. Share with us, please. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, um, Bear and Fred by Iris Argeman and illustrated by Avi Alfer um, is told from the viewpoint of the bear. The fear and the uncertainty of the Holocaust are approached at an angle. The bear is telling Fred's story, and uh, he is a Jewish boy in Holland, and um, when the Germans invade, his parents decide they must flee. Um, It's inferred that the parents worked for maybe the resistance, and um, they had a huge target on their back, and so once grandfather's home is no longer safe, they take Fred to um, a stranger's home, and Bear stays with him the whole time. Um, and he can't look out the windows very much. He can't play very much with other Jewish children. Um, and so the parents have to go into hiding without Fred because um, it's too dangerous for him. And uh, so it, it, the text is very straightforward. The pictures are charming. Um, and peaceful, and it keeps it from being overwhelming. It is a picture book, but it's for older children, and picture books are good for any age. But um, it, it, it looks at it through a filter of a bear talking. And incidentally, the bear that um, Fred had was sent to um, Vad Yalsham, yeah. um, the memorial, the Holocaust memorial in Jerusalem, and he can be seen, um, and they made it out. Uh, Fred kept a bear with him until the the memorial asked for it. And uh, oh, that's so sweet. And wow, so, yes, how powerful! It's yeah. a very powerful book, wow. and it, and it's really um, very touching and not overwhelming for children. I think once you know second, third grade. Um, because they've started paying attention to what happens, and if they're going to school, they're seeing some mm-hmm. some uh, inequity going on. So kids figure it out a lot quicker than adults can sometimes. Yeah. Well, I think we read Number of the Stars in mm-hmm. third grade. Yes. And that's what started my interest in it. And I, I just... I remember going to my librarian and being like, do you have more?
more books like this. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> because, Yay. and I, and I think it was just fascination for me, but also really trying to come to terms with, was this real? Yeah. How could people mm-hmm. do yeah. this? Yeah. This is unbelievable. Yeah. And you're just hearing a just little a bit little of part it. of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what other books did you bring or to talk about? Yeah. Um, for younger children, um, I brought some kindness books and anti-bullying books. Um, the Potato Chip Champ by Maria Dismondi, illustrated by Don Beacon, is a great book about trying to ostracize other people and why it doesn't work out. It doesn't work out uh, very well for Champ. He loves baseball. He loves potato chips. and uh, But he has a teammate named Walter who rides a rusty old bike and his clothes, you know, aren't like the other people's the other kids on the team, and he can't really figure out why everyone else likes Walter so much. That kind of costs him. He gets called out by one of his teammates, you know. You just don't like him because he's a better player. Burn. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. and that does not, that doesn't suit Champ very well. Um, And so one of the the coach announces a fundraiser. Whoever sells the most boxes of potato chips is going to win a truckload of potato chips. And so he... He is all set and brags about how he's going to win, and uh, boom, he breaks a leg sliding into home and is out for the season and can't sell potato chips, and he's feeling really sorry for himself. He's out of baseball. He's out of the competition. And, you know, it's a great book about compassion and sharing and opening your eyes to what really matters, you know, whether it's rusty bikes or uh, um, deciding that, you know, you can maybe share what you have, and uh, and embrace who's diff- someone who's different, yeah, yeah. than yourself. See, yeah. see beyond the the clothes and the the bikes, and so that's a that's a great. It's a good, well paced story. It's going to appeal to to a lot of readers, especially baseball fans. I think who can relate oh, yeah. to the pain of being <laughs> out for the season yes. and uh, having to reflect. Self reflection <laughs> is so hard, and so the book I did bring. Um, and I know y'all will want to look at this, Every Little Kindness. It is a wordless picture book, and it is great for um, talking to your child, to the littles in your life who want to, to sit with you and spend time and talk because it, you can create your own conversation. There are so many details in the charming artwork. It's just delightful to read. And it opens with... Uh, The start of the day for a woman who gets up, she's got to put flyers out for her missing dog. Hmm. And she uh, performs one act of kindness on her way to hang flyers, and someone sees it. And so that person starts a chain as well, a chain of kindness that goes all through the town, all ages. And so it's a a really nice journey through a very picturesque village, and uh, you get to see lots of people help others out. And so it's very beautiful, and there's so much to talk about. And early literacy is my issue, of course. So (laughs) talking about what you're seeing and what you think is going to happen next, and oh, what is that? That's called serve and return. And it's a huge building block for those neural pathways in the brain. And so I'm a big fan of Wordless picture books. Every Little Kindness by Marta Bartol. Are there a lot of those there wordless are, picture books? Yes. Wow. There I didn't are know that ones. at all. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they're great. Um, yeah. David Wiesner is a big author of wordless picture books. He did a great book called Mr. Waffles and um, Flotsam, which won the Caldecott one year. Okay. It's beautiful. 
So getting off track here a little bit. That's okay. <laughs> but well, they're wonderful. I'm so glad that you you're, you brought those up because I know we said we're going to talk about Holocaust books, but like this is a result of, you know, kids needing to know how to treat each other because mm-hmm. of things. We've had things in the past where so clearly we've failed. Building, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, Building blocks. Yeah. That's amazing. And hurt people hurt people. Yeah. We know that. Oh, for sure. Um, and so if we can make the you know, school and households and the world in general, a a gentler place, less traumatic place, we're all going to win. There are no losers when you promote kindness kindness and tranquility and, and allowing others to have space. Brick and Ohm Magazine is Amarillo's lifestyle magazine. Launched by Michelle McCaffrey and me, Jason Boyette, this independent publication celebrates the people, businesses, and heritage of this area. Along with our flagship print magazine, Brick and Ohm also publishes the Brickly email newsletter every week, plus Flavorillo, a bi-weekly food and drink newsletter, plus digital content at brickandelm.com. Brick and Elm highlights the lifestyle and culture of the Texas Panhandle. Brick and Elm is available online or at newsstands near you. So I see you have a a stack of books with you. Oh, yes, I do. Okay, would you like to tell us about your stack of books? Sure. Yes. I'll tell you about these. Um, This fall, the Amarillo Public Library is, well, back in gosh, June of 2019, Melody sent me an email saying, hey, would you be interested in this? I know you just did an Amarillo Reads on Ellie Bazell and his works. And so I was like, well, it has been a couple of years. Let me run it past Amanda and see if she'll go for it. And they were, uh, it was the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and the American Library Association were partnering up and asking for applicants to host a traveling exhibition called Americans and the Holocaust. So we took about two months on the grant application because they wanted all kinds of stuff. And, I mean, floor plans, where would you put the exhibit, you know, what kind of partnerships do you have available to you in the community, all of this stuff. And we applied along with about over 250 other libraries, and out of that group in October, we learned that we were one of the 50 libraries chosen across the country to host the exhibit, and 25 of those were university libraries, and 25 were public libraries, so we are the only library in the state of Texas, only public library in the state of Texas that's going to be given an opportunity to host this exhibition. Congratulations. Yeah, that's, yeah that's we were, amazing. Oh, yeah. we were totally psyched. Yeah. So I went to, that was in October. Then in January, I went to Washington, D.C. and got trained in how to do the exhibit and everything. And on the night before I came back, I heard this story on the news about the first case of COVID in America having happened in Washington. And I was like, Washington, D.C. or Washington State, and they never said it. <laughs> we were initially supposed to host in the fall of 2020, and it got bumped 
to fall of this year. So now we're going to be hosting this amazing exhibition that is like 1,100 square feet and is multimedia. It encompasses opinion polls and videos and posters, uh, propaganda, and World War II, and mostly it's it's different than the other things they've done in the past at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum because it's the American story. It's not just about victims and perpetrators. It's about upstanders, bystanders, witnesses, and how Americans acted and what kind of conflicting priorities they had for their time and their attention. Like we talked about earlier, the Great Depression, there was also a huge communist scare because of the Soviet Union. There were, and we had, like Melody was mentioning, the whole Jim Crow era thing going on. So there was a lot of different things going on in America that may have made them say, yeah, but we're doing that too. Or yeah, but Times are tough. We don't want to bring over people just because they're being persecuted someplace else. We want to have our people have jobs because we had a huge unemployment crisis, not Mm. like we have now. So anyway, I'll tell you about the books. Um, The first two books, really, are by Andrew Nagorski. Now, Andrew Nagorski was a longtime foreign correspondent for Newsweek magazine, and he got expelled from Russia for uh, some of his investigative reporting. And he has a book about that, A Farewell to Moscow. But the first book that really encompasses what we're talking about in the exhibition is Hitlerland, American Eyewitnesses to the Nazi Rise to Power. And what he does is he investigates what different people, whether they're the Olympic athletes of the 1936 Berlin Olympics, to regular businessmen, to journalists. There were a lot of journalists, and some, there was an article, I think, in Vogue that basically made Hitler look silly, and that was, is now considered a big mistake because people didn't take Hitler seriously enough after reading that article. Then Dorothy Thompson did an in-depth uh, interview with Adolf Hitler and wound up not only writing about it in her paper. She was married to Sinclair Lewis, was Dorothy Thompson. But she wrote a book called I Saw Hitler. And she was one of the, she was the first journalist expulsed from Germany because she was telling it how she saw it, and they did not allow that. (laughs) But Hitlerland is a fascinating story. It has diplomats, businessmen, all kinds of different people, and the ones who saw what was happening, the ones who looked the other way, the ones who deliberately blinded themselves. But according to Nagorski, eventually they all came to the realization that this was the beginning of something horrific. It's a fascinating book, and Andrew Nagorski is going to be coming here as one of our programs in October. And he also wrote another book called Saving Freud, The Rescuers Who Brought Him to Freedom. So in March of 1938, the Nazis annex Austria. Sigmund Freud is at this point 81 years old, 
and is battling cancer. He's lived in Austria his entire life. And while a lot of other Jews were fleeing Austria, Freud decides not to. So some people say, okay, we've got to change his mind about this because Freud, the great father of modern psychiatry, was in deep denial that his country could turn on him, that his countrymen could turn on him. I don't know whether he thought it was because, oh, yeah, but I'm Sigmund Freud. I'm the father (laughs) of modern psychiatry. They would never hurt me. I'm famous. Mm -hmm. Ha, ha. Talk about ego. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately, with celebrity comes ego. He'd be familiar. Um, Yeah, he thinks he's all that. Yeah. (laughs) But several prominent people close to Freud decided they were going to make a coordinated effort to persuade him to leave Vienna and immigrate to England. So that's another one of the books that Andrew Nagorski will be talking about whenever he comes here. Mm-hmm. What other books do you have? Okay. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> um, another book we have is 50 Children, One Ordinary American Couple's Extraordinary Rescue Mission Into the Heart of Nazi Germany, and it's by Steve Pressman. He also was the producer and scriptwriter of the HBO documentary on 50 Children, the rescue story of Mr. Hmm. and Mrs. Krause, I think is the name of it. But this couple just decides they need to go over to Germany and get unaccompanied children out of there because a lot of children had been left on their own. Their parent would go off and be taken their you know, their father would be taken, their mother would go to see what she could do to bring him and stuff and then never be seen again. So they had a lot of unaccompanied children. A lot of people had children or a child that they decided, no, I need to get them out of here, whatever the cost. And so uh, Mrs. Krause, Eleanor Krause, talks some about how hard it was to choose which there were so many people wanting to be part of this and wanting their children to go that she had to decide which of the children could survive Mm. best without their parents and be placed into what amounted to foster care or a possible adoptive family in America. But Gilbert and Eleanor go over in 1939 and basically fewer than 1,200 unaccompanied children were allowed into the United States during the entire Holocaust. The group of children that Gilbert and Eleanor Krauss brought in was the largest single group of unaccompanied Jewish children ever brought to America during the Holocaust, 50 children. And the opening panel of the exhibit has a picture of children looking over the railing of a ship at the Statue of Liberty. That is also the cover of this book because it's from the 50 children that were brought to America by Gilbert and Eleanor Krauss. It's a bit like Schindler's List, but with children. Yeah, it (laughs) really is. A bunch of little kids that can you imagine (laughs) taking a ship across Mm -hmm. the Atlantic with 50 children? No. Many of them traumatized, many of them missing their parents and their families and having gone through loss. So you know they had a lot of extra behavioral problems that they were unaccustomed to dealing with. What about you? 
Um, for older readers, I would say, you know, 12 and up, maybe 13 and up. We have Chance, Escape from the Holocaust, which is the author's account of his childhood, which was mostly the first several years were during the Holocaust, and his parents were going from refugee camp to refugee camp. Yuri Shulevitz, he also won a, a Caldecott honor for his book, for younger readers, How I Learned Geography, and that was based on his childhood experiences. But in this one, he goes deeper, talks about um, trauma, being deserted by his father during the refugee experience, and how that shaped him and his art, both from that time and from the present, and the role that art had for him, helping him heal and deal with his life. And I, I believe he lives in Israel now. That's where they, they finally achieved safety because they were in refugee camps for years. It's one of those books that makes you go, how wonderful that people survived, but how did they survive that mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. years? Wow. Another book that we are going to be bringing in the author of is Rescue Board, The Untold Story of America's Efforts to Save the Jews of Europe. Hmm. They waited till pretty much the last minute on this one. What had happened with this, uh, this is by Rebecca Erbelding. She is a historian and archivist at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And this contains a huge amount of newly discovered evidence. And it talks about the creation of the rescue board in, that was in January 1944. A man named John Paley from the Treasurer's, Treasury Department goes with his boss to meet with FDR and put out his case for, we need to do something about the State Department. Because the State Department, as early as the 1920s, they had created an immigration policy that only allowed so many visas from mm -hmm. each country. And as Germany expanded, they did allow that number to go up. But they would decide who was, oh, a good fit for coming to America and who wasn't. And there were a number of people in the State Department that were very stingy with those visas. They did not want to have people come over. And there was a ridiculous amount of paperwork. There were, historians call it walls of paper to keep people from getting out of Germany and even more paperwork to get them to be able to come into America. I know that whenever you've been hearing the news lately about Ukraine and saying, oh, we're going to let an additional 100,000 immigrants from mm -hmm. Ukraine come into America, but they have to have a sponsor. That's exactly what was happening in the 30s. You had to have someone in America because of the Great Depression say, I am put on paper. Mm. I will take financial responsibility of this person so that they do not become a burden to the American government and go on welfare or whatever. I will keep that from happening. So you had to be affluent to sponsor mm -hmm. somebody. People in Germany, the Jews, were writing total strangers saying, hey, do you know anybody who wow. can help me? <laughs> and they didn't have, like, phone books for things going on in America. You'd have to go to the library, I guess, and see if there were census records or something like that. Then you'd have to spend what little money you still had trying to appeal to somebody. And some people made it. Most didn't. But the State Department 
would fail to give out the full number of visas each year. So you'd have all of these people who are trying to get out. So by the end of, I think, like 1938, there was like an 11-year waiting period at the embassy in Germany to get out of Germany. And by that time, it was pretty much too late. Mm -hmm. So Paley decided, no, we need to do something to rescue the Jews of Eastern Europe. And he goes with his boss to FDR. And within a couple of weeks, FDR has saying, hey, there is funding. We have put funding in. The State Department isn't using the funding to get these people out uh, because Congress had awarded uh, some budgetary funding for that purpose. And the State Department still wasn't doing it. So they went on ahead and uh, FDR established the War Refugee Board. We didn't have a separate thing for refugees. We just had the same immigrant program. Mm -hmm. So within 10 months, Paley had put together, he put Paley in charge of it. And within 10 months, he put this ragtag group of people from millionaires to smugglers, from forgers to diplomats to pencil pushers, all kinds of people together to work ways to get people out through like multiple continents, 12 countries. And it's just crazy, but it worked. And they got tens of thousands of people out. And then finally, we have The Liberators, America's Witnesses to the Holocaust by Michael Hirsch. And Michael is a Jewish American. He is a Vietnam combat vet. Most of his books have been about military topics. Mm-hmm. And in this one, he does a deep dive into how liberating the camps affected the American service men and women who did so. So he does these exhaustive interviews. He did over 150 exhaustive interviews with American servicemen and American service women who were actually there from so, like Bergen-Belsen the- to Mauthausen. Like the trauma that they experience. Is yeah. That, that's what they're going through. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. they did. Yeah. I mean, it was traumatic. Yeah, for sure. I know we had, uh, there was Corporal Forrest Robinson who saw masses of dead bodies at Nordhausen, and he was so horrified, he lost his memory for the next two weeks. Wow. Some people changed their entire plans for their lives. I and mean, most of these were kids. They were in their teens yeah. and early 20s. And they saw the most, hor- I mean, they'd already been through battle Mm -hmm. they'd been through seeing friends injured and killed Mm -hmm. and now they see the the skeleton people Mm -hmm. some of whom die in their arms they have been starved they have been treated as less than human and uh melvin waters who was a 4f volunteer civilian ambulance driver recalls one woman at Bergen-Belsen fighting us like a cat because she thought we were taking her to the crematory. They didn't know who these people were. Yeah, It was just, at least not all of them. Some people were thrilled, and other people were like, you're picking me up and taking me somewhere. You're going to burn me. You're going to kill me. So he interviewed these common people, not the big leaders, not the people most of the journalists go after, just the common guys and gals who wanted to do their bit. And for a lot of these people, it was the first time they'd ever talked about it. I, that's a very, I'm very interested in reading that book, The Liberators, yeah. yes. My Library Does That? Presented by Check Me Out, a podcast for book lovers. 
Did you know the Amarillo Public Library teaches ESL and citizenship classes? The classes are offered three times a year and are completely free. Library staff can even help with citizenship paperwork. Classes and resources are available at the APL's downtown library. More information about signing up for ESL and citizenship classes can be found at amarillolibrary.org. The Nazi Hunters by Neil Bascom is action-packed, and it will leave the reader wanting more. It is based on his adult book, Hunting Eichmann, which is also well-paced and thrilling and leaves you wondering at every sentence if they're going to actually... Yeah. Cynthia's whispering, mm-hmm. good book. Yeah, good book. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> it is. It's, it's great. It is, um, and I think no matter how... His pacing is so on point that you cannot it, you can't imagine which way it's going to go you can know how the story is going to end but the the road to the end is so fraught with things that could go wrong because this was a group of Mossad agents it was in 1960 when they went on this mission into Argentina which was very friendly to Germans and Nazis before World War II mm. Peron wanted engineers and doctors and scientists to come to Argentina because he needed them for the future there. And so it was very friendly to Nazis after the war as well. Eichmann was the architect of the final solution. He sent many, many people to their deaths, hundreds of thousands, if not more. And uh, he got out. He escaped from, from Germany. What? at the last minute and wound up in Argentina and was there for over 10 years when Israel decided we need to bring this man in. They knew where he was. They knew the country. They didn't know where he was, but uh, they had to go very undercover because the Argentine government could would gladly throw them in prison for at least 10 years. That's wild. Yeah. And so if they even There's survived. There's a lot of corruption in a lot of countries. Yes. And Argentina was well, one of them. It's just amazing how it's just it truly, when you think world war, it is truly the world. Um, mm-hmm. It is. Uh, it's, it's so widespread. You don't yeah. think Argentina. No. Latin America no. involved in World War Two? No. Um, but it is thrilling. It is Ocean's Eleven and every James Bond movie with some <laughs> Indiana Jones thrown in. Because, wow. And it's all true. There are remarkable photographs. It's thrilling. I, um, I've read Hunting Eichmann twice. Wow, that good. Okay. It's a good book. Yeah, it I, is. I, I, it's are it. those together? Like, um, or they? It's same author, but do they have anything to do with each other? I guess. Yes, they do. Actually, okay. this is the youth version. Um, oh, okay. Like Unbroken, the book Unbroken. There was an adult version, and then the author wrote a, a youth version. Wow, that's okay. cool. And that's- so. Um, edited down a little bit for maybe too much detail or something like that. But yeah. I, I've recommended Hunting Eichmann to, to younger readers before this was published. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, I've read it twice, and it still is thrilling the second time. It's like the movie Apollo 13. Every time I watch it, mm-hmm. I think, are they going to make it? So good. Yeah. yeah. It's got that same level of pacing yeah. and tension, and it's just so well done. It's yeah. amazing. So before we wrap everything up, is there a final book that what 
a book that when you are researching for this or just generally in your lifetime that really sat with you um, that you just couldn't walk away from and that you might recommend? Oh, gosh. I love Denial um, about her having written this book about people who were denying that the Holocaust ever happened. And, I mean, of course it did. There are so many witnesses. I mean, I think one of the smartest things that General Eisenhower, then General Eisenhower, ever did was invite Congress and the press to tour the concentration camps. So they had more people because he didn't want the witnesses to die out. And now it's been so long ago that they are beginning to die out, but their memoirs, their stories and stuff live on. At any rate, she had written like one sentence in her book about this man in England. I think his name is John Irving, but I'm, don't quote me on that. I don't know. I can't remember for sure. <laughs> David, David, David Irving. Irving. Yeah. I knew his last name was Irving. <laughs> so David Irving, who was a Holocaust denier, and he sues her in England, and she has to get together a huge case to prove, because the libel laws and slander laws are different in Great Britain than they are here. Mm -hmm. The weight of the evidence is on you if you've been accused of denigrating somebody. Right. And you have to prove, hey, this happened. So she had basically had to prove that the Holocaust happened. Yeah. To Because he kept saying, no, this didn't happen, this didn't happen, this didn't happen. And it was a huge victory for uh, people who believe in facts and history and documentation and truth. And it set Holocaust deniers back for years. But they're making a comeback. They're still And anti-Semitism is I, making a comeback. I just watched a documentary called The Accountant of Auschwitz. And mm -hmm. he had come forward, I think maybe 15, 20 years ago, simply to tell people, no, this happened. Like, yeah. he, in, a weird, in a very disturbing way that he was, still had belief that what he did was right. Yeah. Um, but that's the pure reason that he came forward, is to, to tell people, like... So no. don't say it didn't happen, yeah. it happened. Yeah. Well, and, and the regime kept such pristine records yes. of everything they did. Yes. And so... Do the shredding, people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if you want to deny it yeah. happened, but yeah, they were huge on. Well, they were very, very proud of what they yes. did. Yeah, they were proud they of were. it. Mm -hmm. What about you? I actually took a course at WT with Dr. Elizabeth Morrow Clark, who, uh, and it was a study of Nazi Germany, and it was intense, and I could not watch anything that had to do with World War II for about four years after I finished this wow. class. Yeah. Um, but I learned so much because we looked at propaganda and the common people. And I read a book. It was volume one of A Man's Diaries. And his name was Victor Klimperer. He was a historian in Germany. He lost his post. And he and his wife had a hard time providing for their needs, he was writing to relatives in Britain and the U.S. trying to get some help. But this was his day-to-day -day diary, and I don't know how I'm going to feed the cat. You know, I'm very worried wow. about feeding the cat. They came for my typewriter today. That book stayed with me because it was a very 
realistic account of day-to-day life as a Jewish person in, in Germany. He never got out, but for some reason he was left alone, and I don't know. I huh. haven't. I have not figured that out. He not left alone. They were harassed, and mm-hmm. um, their goods confiscated. They had no livelihoods. But he, I don't believe he ever got sent to a camp. I, I read the one volume during that class, and I, I could not. But that book stayed with me because of it being an adult's firsthand account. I don't believe he and his wife had any children. They just had extended family that were dispersed, so they were on their own. There's a book coming out from Wisconsin University Press, I think, later this year, on the diaries of Maria Kiss Motti. And Maria Motti was a doctor in Hungary during the Nazi occupation, and her daughter had married an engineer, I believe, and lived here in Texas. And she wrote, so she wrote all of her diaries of the Nazi occupation in English, and they are available. They've been digitized, and they're available at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, but they're doing a book on her diaries because it's the most, complete documentation in English of what it was like to live under Nazi occupation in Hungary during that period. She, her little apartment was across the street from the Nazi radio station and Panhandle PBS did a program on her because her grandson, David Walt, uh, yeah, Steve, Steve Walton, Steve Walton. Yes. I'm bad with names. (laughs) Steve Walton lives here in Amarillo. He does. And, he has he had her diaries. He donated them to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. It's a fascinating story, and we're going to have Karen Welsh and Steve Walton come and do a program for us as one of our other programs that we're doing. And I believe that episode of Live Here is available on PanhandlePBS.org. So if you ever want, it's watch called it. Witness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Hillary, what about you? What about me? Yeah. yeah. What about you? You're a big Holocaust oh. jammer. <laughs> That's so hard. Well, I know. You know, Number of the Stars was huge for me, but then I read a book by Jerry Spinelli called Milkweed, mm-hmm. and um, it was uh, just about a little boy, I believe in Poland, who you just, you kind of follow him through trying to understand what these ghettos were and trying to understand, you know, it's from his point of view, and um, I think that one helped me more than anything to, to understand really the dire straits of what people were experiencing. Um, that one stuck with me for a really long time. I didn't think you would ask me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. Uh, gosh. Have you read Ellie Vazell's Night? Yes. Yeah, I read oh. that. In, I read that in middle school. I don't, I don't know why I'm blanking on everything. I should yeah. have written all of them down. I recently bought uh, uh, The Librarian of Auschwitz, um, which uh, I'm – it's on my nightstand to read that now. So I, I do constantly look for it. And I, I think a lot of them for me run together because of how many that I've read. Uh, but Milkweed is the one that stands out to me. And I still have that from my childhood on my, my bookshelf wow. at home because um, I do revisit it from time to time. So I've only read maybe five books ever mm-hmm. about World War II at all. Um, but The Book Thief is one of those oh, that actually yeah, yeah. made me weep, which... Yeah. I rarely actually cry from a book, but 
it's just so powerful. And mouse, I think we we oh, have to bring yes. up mouse. Okay, oh, you well, have that one might be my we favorite. Wanna, <laughs> we want to talk about yeah. how recently it was banned by some school districts yeah. and our thoughts on that. So yeah. thoughts. Have, have y'all read mouse? <laughs> oh yes. Yeah, I've read mouse. Yeah, um, and it's it's wonderful. I mean, it, it it is beloved by so many people and different people mm-hmm. who may not read a lot of graphic novels, but or they don't read you know, regular text. So they only read graphic yeah. novels. Right. Yeah. And so it opened people's eyes to the to the power of the graphic um, medium as well as a first person account, basically. He's telling his father's story, but and it's not a human being. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. there's just again a little bit just a tiny bit of diff distance in mouth. Um but it's still graphic and powerful, more powerful than his just a regular biography would have been. Mm-hmm. And um, banning a book really helps that book sales. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So stop banning them, people. Yes. Exactly. Um, and there is a second one, Mouse 2. Yeah. Three? Three. three. There's, There's three. 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 I've You're not read the third girl. one. I haven't oh, read it either. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so, um, but yes. Uh, so banning is great publicity for the author and for the library. And uh, we have mouse, and we've had to replace it a few times because it gets worn out and because it's been out for a while. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so we've, we've gone through several copies just downtown. But, yeah, there are three volumes of that because Art Spiegelman really hit his stride with, with that and it moves so many people and it's very important and perhaps that's part of the banning um, as well as because the book is seen as being so important to so many people. Powerful. Very yeah. powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mouse. One of my favorites for sure. Yep. So good. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Most of the school districts have rethought their, their actions. <laughs> well, someone <laughs> mentioned uh, the drawn, drawn mouse nudity as one of their reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mouse, mice really don't come with clothes, so yeah. mouse nudity should not know, be a big issue. That's how we yeah. see them typically. Well, right? yeah. I can blame Stuart Little for that, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And well, for those of you listening at home, it's M-A-U-S if yes. you want to look it yeah. up. It yeah. sounds like regular mouse yeah. in English, but it's not spelled yeah. the same. And I believe it's cats that are the Nazi. Yes. Yes. Party and then mm-hmm. mice as uh, Jewish people, yeah. yeah, yeah, and individuals. So, yeah, that's a. I'm glad you brought that up. Well, thank you guys so much for coming. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank so. you for having us. Yeah, yeah, really. Thank you very much. Yeah. Anytime you want to talk about books. Yeah, we're here. We got your number. <laughs> yep. Yes, you do. Me Out is recorded in the FM90 and Panhandle PBS studios on the Washington Street campus of Amarillo College. The show is produced by Hillary Holsey and me, Amy Hart. Special thanks to Stacy Clopton, Tanner Bass, and Colin Lutz. And thanks to Stevie Brashears for designing our logo and the Mag7 for providing music. Thank you again to our supporters, friends of the Amarillo Public Library, Brick and Elm Magazine, and Humanities Texas. 
Check us out on Facebook and hit subscribe wherever you're listening. This episode of Check Me Out parallels the exhibition Americans and the Holocaust at the Amarillo Public Library and the Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, and Sarah Botstein film The U.S. and the Holocaust on Panhandle PBS. Special thanks to WETA, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and PBS for their support of this initiative.